Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Dr. Michael Sala with us, pioneer in the development of exopolitics. He's the author of a number of books, including his latest, Space Force, Our Star Trek Future. He has been an assistant professor, researcher, and residence at the School of International Service at the American University. He has a Ph.D. in government from the University of Queensland in Australia, founder of the Exopolitics Institute, which is a not-for-profit organization that analyzes the political implications of extraterrestrial life. Michael, welcome back to the program, my friend. Thank you, George. Glad to be back. I have not had a chance to get your reaction to the June 25th report that the government sent out on uh, unidentified aerial phenomena. But what's your thoughts on that? I was a little disappointed, honestly. Yes, I think we all were. We all were expecting a lot more to be revealed. Uh, But uh, what it did say was still a step forward. I mean, it did acknowledge the reality of UFOs. It did say that these were something serious related to national security. And so it's laid the groundwork for uh, serious studies and investigations. But of course, for those of us that have been working in the field for several decades now, you know, we know there's so much to this field and that if you just wait for uh, official government documents being released, then uh, you're going to be waiting a long time to learn the truth. This book, Space Force, is number six in your Secret Space Program series. Tell me how you began to develop the entire series. Well, I just was uh, just fascinated uh, by the idea of secret space programs. I mean, it was something that I had come across uh, very early on when I first got involved in the exopolitics field back in 2001. I mean, there were a number of people that talked about uh, secret space programs in the sense of uh, reverse-engineered spacecraft. Uh, Mark McCandlish, I mean, he was one of the presenters at the uh, 2001 Disclosure Project press conference, and uh, he described how he was given information about uh, a sighting of three flying saucers at a air show at uh, Edwards Air Force Base and that one of his uh, peers actually went to this air show and was given a tour and that uh, these were not uh, crashed craft. These were not craft that were being flight tested or anything. These were craft that were fully operational and basically uh, being showed for potential customers. So these had been built probably at the Plant 42 facility there at uh, Edwards Air Force Base, Palmdale. And these uh, were craft that were obviously being sold to someone for use in something. And and customers at that level, we're talking about uh, organizations like uh, Air Force Space Command or the National Reconnaissance Office, uh, those kinds of potential customers, and of course the, the U.S. Navy. So it was something that really got me interested in the field. And then um, around 2015, I, I got to dive deeper into it and realized that you know, there's, there's a lot of people coming forward talking about secret space programs. So I started to look at these different testimonies and was able to start the process of putting together the big picture of what's going on. Uh, the individual you mentioned, Mark McClendish, uh, passed away just a few months ago. There are a lot of people out there, Michael, that think it's very suspicious. What do you think? Yeah, it was very suspicious. I mean, he passed away uh, just 
really weeks before uh, the uh, release of the uh, June 25 report. Yeah. And people that I spoke to that knew him said that he so showed no signs of depression or no sign that he would take his life. And so, you know, one has to ask, well, what was this done to silence someone who knew a little too much when uh, the new narrative being pushed was that uh, UFOs uh, are something that the U.S. hasn't built, but that either belong to a foreign adversary like Russia or China, or could be someone else. And they're, they're, you know, they, they had another category in that re- June 25 report referring to extraterrestrial. Well, Mark McCandlish was really saying that you know, they're our craft, that they've been built at Plant 42 and other facilities, and we have fleets of these things flying around. To really get a better handle on the Space Force, the secret Space Force, we need to go way back to the times of Nazi Germany, where they really were the first to have, you know, basically rockets. They had the V-2 rockets, and they had the scientists that we ended up getting, and the Russians got them, the Soviets got them, under Operation Paperclip for us. But the Germans really had a program going, didn't they? Well, they did. They, they had two separate programs going. One was this uh, rocket program that Werner von Braun and others were working on uh, that uh, led to the V-1 and V-2 rockets. And, of course, the U.S. and uh, the Soviet Union got their hands on uh, the scientists that were behind that and repatriated them to their different countries. Operation Paperclip here in the U.S. and, and, and the Soviet Union had its own project. And both of the uh, space programs of the Soviet Union and, and the U.S., uh, they really benefited greatly from those German rocket scientists. But Germany also had a second program that was not under the control of the, the Luftwaffe because the V-1, V-2 rocket program that von Braun was was originally uh, uh, based out of Penemunde, and that was uh, a Luft- run by the Luftwaffe. Uh, but then uh, the Nazi SS took over those operations. And so the Nazi SS, they had a second program, and that was uh, dealing with flying saucers where they were using uh, advanced electro-gravitic propulsion technologies, torsion field technologies. They were experimenting with up to uh, 30 different prototypes propulsion and spacecraft configurations that were all utilizing these breakthrough physics. So it was all done under the rubric of the Nazi SS, and they had a lot of success. And what was left at the end of the Second World War in terms of uh, the uh, project uh, Operation Lusty that the U.S. launched, where Operation Lusty, the acronym stands for Luftwaffe Science and Technology, where you had uh, teams of scientists and uh, soldiers scouring Germany for all of this advanced tech to be brought back into the United States. And, I mean, they picked up the unsuccessful flying saucer craft, but the Mm -hmm. successful ones uh, were sent down to Antarctica, either flown there or the components were were put into uh, very large submarines and just shipped all the way down to 
Antarctica and South America, and they just continued their operations down there. There are some who believe, Michael, that Hitler escaped, and before he fled to South America, jumped on a submarine, got in one, and went to Antarctica. What do you think of that? Well, I don't know if he made it all the way to Antarctica. I think uh, he definitely got to South America, to Argentina, and I know that he spent uh, several decades in Argentina. I think he was seen, sighted in the, in the 1960s in uh, Argentina, but certainly Hitler was someone that gave a lot of resources to the German Antarctica operation, and they built a lot of submarines that could transport enormous resources down there throughout the Second World War. And, you know, that's been something that has been very, uh, uh, very much debated for decades now. But recent scientific studies show that, in, in fact, that there are underwater entrances into the interior of Antarctica. Just a recent study, just a, a couple of months ago, showed that there were rivers and lakes that uh, displayed tidal action, tidal movements, which meant that the rivers would drain out into the ocean and, and then at high tide they would fill up and then drain again at low tide. And so that's indicative that uh, you could actually have had something like a submarine go right up to the uh, entranceway for that river under the uh, surface of the ocean and navigate through Antarctica and uh, underground uh, mapping of Antarctica shows a very extensive network of rivers and lakes. So yes, now we know that it's very, very plausible that uh, the Antarctic Germans were able to use their submarines to navigate deep into the Antarctic interior under that you know, two miles of ice and build these large fortresses. In fact, uh, you know, there's uh, evidence that they were actually guided to these, fort uh, to these uh, large underground caverns with, which they used as bases. We'll get more into that in a moment here, Michael. Your subtitle to your book, Space Force, is fascinating, Our Star Trek Future. Tell me about that. Well, that was something that uh, emerged in a 2019 study uh, that was uh, convened by... Uh, at the time, it was uh, Air Force Space Command. It's now been renamed Space Force. But in 2019, uh, that there was a workshop held. Uh, I believe it was in March of 2019. And then they released the report. And in that report, uh, they outlined eight scenarios uh, in terms of what would happen in space 40 years ahead in time. So they were looking ahead in 2060. And they came up with eight scenarios and they said that the optimal scenario, the one that they needed to strive for, were, was precisely that, a Star Trek future. And they, they, they identified it as one where uh, there were three criteria, like the, uh, you, you had the economic, mm -hmm. uh, you, you had the political, military, and then you had the, the social element. So it meant that uh, you had unity at a political level in terms of a multinational space alliance working together, kind of like Starfleet in the Star Trek series. Uh, you had uh, major corporations on board as well, building vast fleets of spacecraft and also uh, going deep into space to do things like mining and uh, space tourism and building bases and colonies all over, the, uh, all over uh, space. And also in the third... Uh, the third category in terms of the social, 
you had large numbers of people that were willing to go into space to be the colonizers, to be the miners, to be the first generation of space tourists and and to create a new generation out in space. So they identified that as a Star Trek future. And this was a a, a panel that was attended by uh, space experts uh, from the United States and different countries. NASA, of course, was there. The Air Force and the Navy were represented. And so that really got my attention because it meant that, you know, here's indisputable proof that the U.S. is in the midst of building a multinational alliance where they're trying to get corporations on board, they're trying to get uh, large numbers of people excited by the prospect to build a Star Trek future. There's an incredible individual who has passed on. His name is William Tompkins, uh, that some say he is one of the most incredible whistleblowers to step forward, that he understood ET technology, that we grabbed it from the Nazis. He stole with the Navy spies UFO plans and anti-gravity technology from the Nazis, passed it on the CEOs of American corporations. He worked for Northrop. He worked for Douglas Aircraft. Tell me about William Tompkins. Yes, uh, absolutely. He was an incredible individual. I mean, he did work uh, for the U.S. Navy during the Second World War, and uh, documentation actually proves that, that he was involved in some covert operation uh, under this Admiral, Rear Admiral Boulder that Bill Tompkins said was running this uh, program where they had uh, nearly 30 spies embedded in Nazi Germany in terms of their top aerospace companies, and they were reporting back on a six-monthly basis what they had seen. And they were describing work on multiple different flying saucer craft and also that the Germans were being helped by a species of extraterrestrials that they described as reptilians. Jeez. And so he described uh, the, uh, the briefings or the debriefings of these Navy spies, and, and his job was to put together briefing packets that he would take the different companies, uh, such as uh, Northrop, such as uh, Lockheed, and of course Douglas Aircraft Company, and the top think tanks at the time, uh, MIT, Caltech, and so forth. And he would take these briefing packets and brief any scientist that uh, could help cast light on this kind of work. And so, you know, the, the, the Navy wanted to know whether or not it was feasible that these technologies were being built by Nazi Germany and whether the U.S. could build them. And so he described that. He also described how the Nazis had uh, built a base in Antarctica that the, uh, G that the Navy spies were revealing that there had been a base down there built, that they were taking a lot of this advanced technology down there. And uh, he also, while he was at Douglas Aircraft Company, uh, described designing uh, these kilometer-long spacecraft uh, with the help of these human-looking extraterrestrials that uh, he described as Nordics, but now I believe that they're probably that they were part of something of an organization called the Galactic Federation. Yeah, he claimed he worked with a female ET, right? That's right. He says that there were three of them at uh, Douglas Aircraft Company that he worked with. And, and he said that what he would do and he, the other engineers would do would, would work on these designs for these very long kilometer long spacecraft or space carriers. 
And whenever they struck a problem, one of these uh, ETs would like mentally interact with them and, and help them out. And he said that that's how they did it, that they would put ideas into his head. And so this is the way in which these human-looking extraterrestrials would, would assist us with uh, developing advanced technologies. They wouldn't come in and show us ourselves. They, they went by this idea that, you know, you, you could, if you fed a person fish, you know, they'd be dependent on you for a lifetime. But if you taught them how to fish, then, you know, they, they can do their own, they can feed themselves for a lifetime. And so that was the approach of these Nordic extraterrestrials, that they were teaching uh, American scientists and engineers how to design and build these spacecraft and you know doing it in a way where the, where the designers the architects uh, the scientists thought it was their own ideas and and that was fine with them they didn't need credit for that they just wanted to help uh, the US build a secret space program and Bill Tompkins said that that's that's how it all began and by by the early 1980s uh, that the US Navy began deploying uh, the first of its eight space carrier battle groups. How credible do you find William Tompkins to be? I think he's very credible uh, because, one, he had a lot of documentation proving that he uh, had done the things that he says he'd done. You know, I mean, and he I, had I, no reason to lie about this, did he? No, he didn't. He didn't at all. And it's very interesting, George, because only uh, a week ago... Uh, I, I interviewed, along with uh, Dr. Robert Wood, I interviewed the son of uh, Bill Tompkins. This is Dean, Tom, uh, Dean Tompkins, his son. And for the first time, he told us uh, what he had been told by his father. And he said that he remembered his father talking about extraterrestrials and secret space programs from when he was very young. And he said that he and his older brother didn't believe it. Uh, but they said that because his father believed it and because their mother believed the father, uh, Bill Tompkins, that you know, they were willing to listen to it. And then he says that at a certain point, um, uh, his older brother had a UFO encounter. And once he had that UFO encounter, then he became a believer too. But that was very, very reassuring for us that are working, we're working on the third volume of Bill Tompkins' uh, memoirs now. And we're putting together all the interviews that he did, and that hopefully should be released in the next three months. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.